Erev Tov, good evening. We are continuing with our Shi'ur and Agadah. Last week we did a unique piece of Rav Kuk in the En Ayah, which is Rav Kuk's commentary on the En Yaakov. Ayah stands for Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen. And that's Rav Kuk's name. And today we're going to be doing another piece from Rav Kuk. A little bit longer, but something that hopefully we'll be able to do together. I attached a PDF, three of them actually, but if you look at the third PDF, it should say Enaya text. I don't have that exact PDF in front of me. I'm using a hard copy book, but you should see. It should say Aleph, Bed, Gimel. We're up to section Gimel. If anybody can give me a page number for everybody else, I would very much appreciate that. It's the PDF, Enaya. I think it's page three. Is it Gimel at the bottom? Or page two? It's like a cursive Gimel. Yeah, that one. Perfect. Perfect. So the Gemara, if you remember, the Gemara asked the following question. How do you know that when it says sunset, it means sunset, and that the day passively, it passes, Dilma biat orohu. Maybe it means sunrise. Umai v'taher tahar gavra. What does it mean v'taher? That the individual has to do an action in order to make himself pure. So there's two ways to read this verse. Amen. There's two ways to read this verse. One was talking about sunset. One is talking about sunrise. The one that's talking about sunset refers to a kohen who passively becomes pure. How does he passively become pure? Now the three stars have come out. Even though tomorrow he has to offer a sacrifice, we said, En kaparato ma'akavto. His kapara does not hold him back. What does it mean that his atonement does not hold him back? Which atonement? The sacrifice he's supposed to bring when? The next morning. Very good. On the eighth day in the morning. So how do you know that it's talking about sunset on the seventh day, which brings him to the eighth night, and now he's pure? Maybe it means tomorrow morning the sun rises and Tahir, he actively has to go and offer a sacrifice in order to come close to HaKadosh and then he becomes pure. I mean, how do you know? Why does the Gemara really get stuck here on this point? Essentially what's bothering Harav Kuk is why is the Gemara even offering an alternative reading? And let's be honest, the reading of that he has Biat Hashemesh, the coming of the sun, and the discussion of Vitaher and he should become pure, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense that that should be referring to not sunset and passive purification, but rather sunrise and the act, an action of bringing a sacrifice which purifies him. This is bothering Harav Kuk. Why there are two different readings here in the Gemara? And why Chachamim are adamant over one, with one over the other? 
Let's read Rav Kook together. You said it's at the bottom of page two, the top of page three of the PDF. Be'oni, in my humble opinion, Nirali lihitbonen betam remez inyan hasafek shel shnei hapirushim betemad vetaher. Hamur achar uvashemesh. In my humble opinion, I think there's what to pause and ponder on the two different readings of the Talmud. When after Uva Hashemesh, the sun rises or sets, the Gemara discusses whether this is a passive purification or an active purification. I'm asking you, but I don't lose me at any point. If you need to stop me, stop me and ask. Because if you lose me, we won't be able to follow the train of thought together. So the Gemara has two different reasons, uh, two different readings. Says Rav Kook, we have to stop and see what, the, what is the reason for those readings. If it's talking about the day passing, or the, I mean the day becoming purified and therefore it passed, or the individual, the giver, the person becomes pure actively. And what did our rabbi see? Truthfully. Why did Chachamim, why were they so adamant to read, and this is Rav Kook saying, why were they so adamant to read the Pasuk incorrectly? Meaning, not incorrectly, but not in the simple meaning of what we would think that this Pasuk meant. In a way, in a manner, which seems unusual, at least on face value, and a superficial reading of this text. According to Pshat, the simple, I don't like the word simple for Pshat. Someone give me a better, better, better literal, I think literal is a better answer for, word for Pshat. According to the literal meaning of the verse, Uva Hashemesh v'taher, taher should be talking about the person who's impure, meaning the day passes and he becomes pure. So Rav Kuk is asking, why did our rabbis insist on reading this pasuk differently than what it may have actually meant in the original? It seems like this is talking about an action that the man undertakes. And our chachamim are insistent on reading it as a passive point in time in which the person becomes pure. Now, one could argue with Rav Kuk and say that the way the Torah is written, its literal understanding is the way Chachamim understand the Torah. It would be incorrect for us to say that there is a more correct version of reading the Torah than the way in which our Chachamim read the Torah. And I don't believe for one moment that Rav Kuk is actually suggesting that our Chachamim are manipulating this Pasuk, or that our Chachamim are, are doing something different. Rabbanit, you're writing to me? Are doing something different. No. Okay. Than what a Kadosh Bahu wanted to be read inside of the Torah. But ultimately, there are two ways to read this Pasuk. And whether you can argue one is Peshat and one is not Peshat, Rav Kook is trying to understand what is really the difference between these two readings. Not on a simple level is it talking about sunset or sunrise. Not on a simple level is it talking about a passive purification versus active purification. But you and I, when we are reading this Gemara, 
which spiritual message, which educational message are we supposed to be walking away from this piece of Agadah with when reading this dispute? Harav Kuk used to complain a lot about what he called Azavnu et Nishmat Torah. We have abandoned the soul of the Torah. You ever heard of that expression, Nishmat Torah, the soul of the Torah? Meaning, the Torah has its own living, breathing soul. And so often, the Torah is turned into something dry and technical and cold and ultimately lifeless. Now, Fuk argues that we've abandoned, abandoned it. Now, he has a very painful letter, in which he discusses that we have to go out to the system and scream at the top of our lungs and demand, bring light back to the world of Torah. He said, but you shall know that we'll be met with mockery. The mockery of, what do you want? Shirat emevakshim, songs, poetry you guys want. Kabbalat emevakshim, you want mysticism. Rav Kuk is not neshama of Torah, I want the Torah to be living. What Rav Kuk is doing here is he's going to read a Gemara that is otherwise technical. He is going to breathe life into the sugya. It's almost like what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did with the first man. Who breathes into the nostrils of Adam a soul of life to give soul, to give meaning to something. It doesn't detract from the literal meaning, but it gives us an educational message that we're supposed to walk away with. And I believe that if we would learn Torah more like this, being able to show that there are deep messages found, even in the more technical aspects of our Torah, the people wouldn't run for the hills like they do from a very dry, cold, technical, and ultimately lifeless Judaism. Omnam says Rav Kuk, Yuvanu hadvarim al pi We can explain this in a way that is understood to everyone. Vegam chachamim amru kidivrei harambam zal b'moen avuchim. And even our chachamim agreed to the words of the Rambam and the moen avuchim. That if today we had three hours together, then I would sit down with you right now and read to you this chapter of Moreh Nebuchim in the third uh, essay, the third section of Moreh Nebuchim, in Perig Mem Zayin 47. If you have a Moreh Nebuchim at home, and maybe even have one of the English translation, if you go and read Moreh Nebuchim section 3, chapter 47 tonight, it's a good homework to do. To be able to understand what the Rambam there is, the Rambam is a beautiful piece there. In fact, the Rambam writes there something that is not relevant to my shoe at all tonight. But he's talking about the concepts of Tumah and Tahara, what we in the West like to translate as purity and impurity. And it's not at all what our Chachamim mean, what the Torah means when they discuss Tumah and Tahara. When a man or a woman become Tima'im, they're not impure. Imagine walking around half a month feeling that I'm impure. What kind of feeling is that? It shouldn't surprise you then that there are subgroups of the Jewish people who developed all kinds of highly unusual practices. Name me an unusual practice that has to do with avoiding Jewish observance when a person is impure. That exists today, especially among Ashkenazi Jews. Well, there used to be Kabbalists who wouldn't sit on a mat for a woman who was menstruating. Okay, very good. So the, there were these people who but still are. They won't sit on a chair that a nida sat on, or they won't lay in a bed that, uh, because of some kind of impure forces that are there. 
An example I'm thinking about connects to the Bet Knesset. Anyone can think about the Bet Knesset? Uh, touching the Sefer Torah. Touching the Sefer Torah, but even entering the Bet Knesset. There are some Ashkenazi communities that have customs that women don't enter the Bet Knesset. They don't say Amen. They shouldn't pray. Lambam writes a highly unusual behavior. He in fact blames it. Yeah? Then you have the complications of Tzniyut, so that it becomes all the time because otherwise... Right, it's the rest, that's right. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's right. And then the Rambam says essentially the only time that Tuman and Tahara really matter are inside of the Bet HaMikdash. Out of the Bet HaMikdash is life as usual. And it's unfortunate that I have a book in my home. A Sephardic book on family purity. And the whole introduction of that book exists to undermine everything the Rambam just taught us. <laughs> For them, Tuman and Tahara, about flowers dying, about people, all kinds of crazy, not rising, about it. A little bit of uh, uh, learning Torah, not like an idolater, would take us a long way. I'm taking this tangent because I believe that chapter of Moen Bukhim is very important. So just sit on and, and learn well. Over there, the Rambam, and therefore says Rav Kuk Chachamim, inevitably agree with such a thing. But there's this attitude, it's an incorrect attitude, that the Torah of the Rambam is somehow Aristotelian. There's this, people love to. It would be like if I quoted, I don't, I don't want to give an example, it would be a bad example. If you quote someone, does that make you that person? It means that you found truth there. The Rambam quotes Aristotle like he quotes other things. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not fair to put the Rambam in any other box aside from he was a true Chacham of the Jewish people. That's the only box you can put the Rambam inside of. And by the way, I would argue that even limiting his wisdom to the Jewish people would be doing him a disservice. Because there were those around him who gained tremendously from him that had nothing to do with Am Yisrael, at least not overtly. He said that Chachamim agree with the Rambam's assessment. Meaning the Rambam, his worldview, and the worldview of Chachamim are organic. They're together, they're connected, they're the same thing. There's a thing even in the Jewish world of today to try to paint the Rambam as some kind of He's a chacham when it comes to halakha, but everything else, he's some kind of heretic that was necessary for the times in which he lived and so on and so forth. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. You hear this in so many different places from so many different directions that you almost don't know where to, you don't know where to turn anymore to get accurate information. Our chachamim say similar to what the Rambam writes in the Moren Nebuchim. That all the, and I'm not going to use the word purities and impurities, but all of the tumot and all of the taharot that exist in the Torah, that they are tremendous, they are very deep messages that connect to the tuma and tahara of souls, not just of bodies. To free a person from all the tumah that comes along with improper thoughts, improper actions, improper behaviors and character traits. Haraperetz has a very cryptic introduction. Not so cryptic, but more cryptic than others. That's why for me it's cryptic. To his book on the halachot of the mikveh. In there, Haraperet is an entire introduction about Mehadat. I once studied it with some of you here in the Bedeknesset. About the waters of knowledge. 
and how, yes, there is a physical mikveh that we enter in water, but there also is a spiritual mikveh in which we purify our intellect. We purify our spiritual being inside of pure Judaism, inside of pure godliness. And that those who are religious, but who are unaware of how to purify their soul in intellect, are, are very dangerous people. They're lacking fundamental understanding of the way Judaism works and how Judaism is supposed to be studied. It says the Rambam, physical Tuman Tahara directly correlate to spiritual Tuman Tahara. And if you recall, those of you who are familiar with some of the Rambam's writings in medicine, the Rambam doesn't just limit this here to physical and spiritual. The Rambam believes very much that much of what plagues our physical bodies comes from an underlying spiritual, emotional disorder. That there are avirot that can directly harm us, bad character traits that can directly harm our health. And vice versa, ways in which in order to heal someone's body, you also have to be able to heal their soul. I'm very grateful, I'm very grateful to live in a world in which Baruch Hashem, the world of medicine, today has in it many people who are talmidei chachamim. Not just, it's, you know, always you had people who were Torah scholars who had another job. But there are those who are no longer afraid to bring their Torah wisdom into the realm of the sciences. And that's something that's crucial. It used to be people divorced those two things. I'll tell you where I see it the most. I can't speak for my wife. But my wife has been in the field of mental health for a very long time, since I met her. But today with her PhD and everything that goes along with that, uh, you see a world of mental health sciences that has really shifted away from healing people. This is my stance, I don't represent my wife, this is my stance. Has shifted away from healing people's souls and instead has moved to medicating people's souls. That's really been a, a tremendous shift in the way people work. And I'm not taking away that there are people who require medications to live a normal, happy, healthy life. I'm not taking away from that. But that there is, if someone is suffering from something inside, it's a mental disorder, an emotional disorder. There's something there that has to be worked out on a mental, emotional level also. For so long, the fields of psychology, psychiatry, social work have been divorced from any kind of spiritual, religious teachings. And even if, even if everything that we believe is false, even if everything we believe is, doesn't hold up water in a scientific court of law, let's pretend, yeah, for a moment. Just the fact that people are religious the people believe that they have faith means that part of what they need in order to heal is some kind of guidance on the spiritual and religious plane. Even if you're telling me it's just for the placebo effect. It's required for any faith-based person to have their faith healed also, not just their body or their soul or their mind. And the scientific community is so far away, so far, maybe there's some people making inroads, but it's so far away from truly grasping how important this is. But I'm going to tell you, and this is not political, but we live in a country in which the debate recently has been, are houses of worship an essential thing or not? And by the way, as a Jewish person, I'll tell you it's quite simple for me, is that life and preservation of life is more essential than anything we could ever do in a bit of Knesset. And that's obviously a fact, and that explains why we behave the way we behaved in our community for the last year. Nonetheless, the fact that for some people a grocery store is essential in a bit of Knesset is not. 
comes from not understanding that at least for those of us who our lives revolve around faith, that this Berakneset is as essential to us as the grocery store. What we get for our weekly shop, we also have our weekly spiritual fix. And you can call that all kinds of things that you want. Maybe it's the opiate of the masses, but that's a fundamental part in healing ourselves. Harav Kuk says here that the Rambam and the Chachamim essentially teach us that everything that plagues a person in terms of physical Tumah and Tahara have spiritual counterparts, messages, things that it correlates to on a spiritual, emotional plane. There's a famous story once of Rabbi Arya Levin. Rabbi Arya Levin, they call him the Tzadik of Yerushalayim. Tzadik of Yerushalayim, he was a student of Rav Kuk. And many people don't know that. So in the ultra-Orthodox world, many people read about Rabbi Arya Levin. Most people have no idea that he was a student of Rav Kuk. There's, there's a number of stories I would like to tell the ultra-Orthodox community if they ever would listen. Stories about Rav Kuk, just so they could realize that he wasn't who they think he was. Or maybe he was not who they think he was. I don't know how to say that better. Uh, Rav Arya Levin was once sitting with Rav Kuk. It wasn't Shabbat. It was a regular day. They were sitting in a field, maybe in a park, on the grass. You can imagine there was once a world where Chachamim, you could find them sitting in a park in the grass. It's, a, it's a, uh, behind all the poses and the, the you know. They were sitting there, and Rav Arya Levin said he would just sit and talk to Rav Kuk, and he was you know plucking grass out of the out of the ground. And Rav Kook held his hand and said, what are you doing? He said, what do you mean, what am I doing? Well, I'm just, no, I'm just talking to you. He said, what are you doing with the grass? He says, no, I guess I'm pulling out grass. Why are you pulling out grass? Do you need the grass? He said, I don't need the grass. It's just what I'm doing with, you know, your hands do all kinds of things. And Rav Kook told him, he said, every blade of grass here has some spiritual correlation in a different world, in a different realm, in a different place. And whatever you pluck here gets plucked somewhere else also. And unless there is a need for you to pluck what you're plucking here, why are you doing it? Now, I don't understand the realms of different planes and dimensions. You know, it's not where I, where I live most of my life. But I'll tell you on a simple level. That we need to be aware that our actions have consequences and ramifications further, beyond what we can actually fathom. When a Kadosh Bahu says, that we must observe the Shabbat, we must eat kasher foods, we must, whatever it is that we do, we must refrain from engaging in certain behaviors. And this is one of those things we give up our life for. Yes, what is such a big deal about doing this? And you have to accept that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who created the universe knows that the actions that you and I take, that we think are seemingly simple, that those are really big deals in another universe, in a different realm, in a different plane, that our actions have direct consequences that we are responsible for. Harfu continues, The Pasuk says about Abraham, and other, not just there, that Abraham, Baba Yamim, he's coming of age, coming of days. Baba Yamim literally means that he's old, he's getting old. His days are, you know, his days are, have come. Ha-muskelet. And we know that our rabbis teach us on that verse. Ba'u lo that his days 
came to him whole. He had whole days, meaning he utilized his days. His days were not just days of time gone by, but they were days in which he was active, pursuing that which was important to pursue in his life. They weren't just whole days, but they were full days, if I could phrase it that way. The Vilna Gaon explains that when it comes time to calculating our lives on earth, our time is calculated based on how much time we wasted from our life involved in petty and uh, improper actions. Because it's important that a person should involve himself. What counts in this world are things, actions, that bring us closer to our Creator. And when we begin to calculate our time on earth, our time on earth is calculated based on how much of our time did we use productively and how much of our time did we waste. You live in a world today in which wasting time is normal. People kill time. Oh, I'm just trying to kill time. Why are you trying to kill time? Do you know how many people in the hospital wish they had some more time? They're not looking to kill time. Nobody wants to kill anything there. But we, we come home from work. You're single. You're married. You're your kid. Seven hours on Netflix. I want you, to, you fall asleep on the couch. You wake up in the morning. You drink a beer. You go back to work. I want to... There's a life that people live a life like that. When it comes to your life, calculate how long did you live? I mean, how many hours of your life were you productive? Productive has all kinds of meanings. Of course, primarily closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes in many forms. Observance of mitzvot, learning Torah, tefillah, raising children, educating people, working hard to support your family and yourself, but the work that you do is also productive to the world. But compare that to how much time we don't use productively. Any day that has gone by in which we did not utilize that day to its fullest capacity, it's not a day that wasn't used. It's almost like we lost time in our life. It's a negative balance. The day is pretty much past, and we didn't use it properly. We lost the day. Days were given to people so that we can use them to climb, to ascend the ladder of holiness, of goodness, of productivity. Meaning any day that we didn't use is not a day that's neutralized. It's a day lost. A day lost is a negative balance. Don't worry, Rav Kuk is not going to leave us in a terrible Musar place to relax a little. But we have to know how to calculate, how to compute our time. Avraham Avinu, is the type of person who everything that he did, every action he took, every word he uttered, Baba Yamin, his days counted. His days mattered. They were important. 
And there's a story. Maybe Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres passed away recently. Shimon Peres once went to visit Chacham of Yosef. Now you know, if, if you could think about politics, Shimon Peres and Chacham of Yosef have nothing mutual on the political spectrum aside from that they both lived in Israel at the same time. Let's pretty much put it that way. Shimon Peres was a big fan of Chacham Yosef, very close to him. Shimon Peres was one of the last people, if I'm not mistaken, to see Chacham Yosef. And he came into the room of Chacham And he kissed Chacham on his forehead. And they made a huge tumult of him kissing him on his forehead. Who does he think he is? The chief rabbi. When they asked Shimon Peres why he kissed Chacham like what was the significance of that action? He said, I'm kissing the crown jewel of the Jewish people. It's a, it's a crown jewel of the Jewish people. Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel. When he would come visit Chacham Yosef, famously Chacham didn't notice that anybody was in the room. When he would come in, he was so engrossed in his text. And they once told, hey, the prime minister is here. And someone apologized, Prime Minister Netanyahu, we're so sorry you had to wait. And he said, I'm fine. Here is the Jewish people, here is Chacham Yosef writing the future of the Jewish people. That's what he said. This book he's writing, the future of the Jewish people. There are people who use their time productively. I had a rabbi when I was in Yeshiva in Baltimore. Now, Tubishvat was his askar. Rabbi Telner, And I think every speech he ever gave us, every derasha he ever gave us, was about don't waste your life, don't waste your time, don't waste your life, don't waste your time. My, I think every, my, it was every Shabbat in a different flavor. So however you could connect that derashat to the weekly parashat, but it was about don't waste your time, don't waste your life. The, he, he was like that. That was exactly how he was. He was always in the bit of Midrash. We were in the bit of Midrash, he was still doing something important. When secular studies were canceled because of a snow day, it was snowed on the East Coast today, it snowed in Yerushalayim today, so secular studies were canceled. Everybody came back to the bit of Midrash to learn. You don't waste time just because something is canceled. There's a blackout in the Yeshiva, so what do you do? You light candles and you learn anyways because we don't stop learning because the lights went out. Your time is valuable, your time is precious. That message, he, had a, uh, he was induced in a coma towards the end of his life. And when he woke up from that coma, Rabbi Cook, who's the current rabbi in the yeshiva there, I just spoke to him recently. He asked him, Rabbi Tanner, how do you feel? Rabbi Tanner looked at the calendar and he said, I feel, I feel like I lost three days of my life. That's what I feel. And it's a person who really values time. There's some people who don't value their time. There are other people who do. And not just because time is money, but time is your life. And this is what's happening here. So what happens to a person who was Tameh? Rav Kook is telling you that a Tameh person, a person who's involved in things that are chet, that are improper, they're not just wasting time, they're losing life. They're losing time. And so now what happens to a person who wants to do Teshuvah? I now want to do Teshuvah for all the time in my life that I wasted. For the years of my life that I was not productive the way I should have been. For the hours in my day that I didn't spend. What do I do now? Says Rav Kook, 
When a person returns and does teshuvah, you know how beautiful the word teshuvah is? It's one of my favorite words in Hebrew. Really. A person doesn't do teshuvah, they don't make teshuvah, all kinds of weird English words. Shav bitshuvah is the way you say it in Hebrew. Shav means he returns in teshuvah. Teshuvah, the whole root of the word teshuvah is return. I can only return somewhere if I've been there already. I can only return to who I really am. I'm not becoming who I'm not. I'm returning. But this is a concept. I always tell people the word giyu. I don't like the English word conversion. When you convert somebody, it means you take a person from what they are to what they're not. You turn them into somebody new. And there is an element of new. Sure, obviously, there's novelty here. But I believe that this is someone connecting to their real essence, to who they really are. And therefore, the Hebrew word giyul is more fitting than the English word of conversion. When a person returns in teshuvah, there are two levels of teshuvah. The first step of teshuvah, the first level, that you fix that which is wrong, and we restore ourselves to the place that we were before we did something wrong, before our chet. So we did something wrong. Now we do teshuvah. Our teshuvah that we did restores us back. We're now, uh, you go buy an electronic in the store, they say this is factory refurbished, back to original specifications. We've returned ourselves back to our original place. Even though we really didn't ascend any further than where we were before we did a chet. Meaning, we haven't improved. We've simply balanced out our negative balance, now we're at zero. We're, we're where we were at the beginning. We're resetting the score. Nonetheless, even though our balance is now zero, but we have left behind our evil. We've left behind that which we've done wrong. And therefore we can't say that that day has no purity in it at all. We can't say that that day has no goodness at all. We can't say it's a wasted day completely. And even if we sit down and we calculate with a person, you had a 24-hour day, in an hour 23 you did teshuvah, you still wasted 23 hours of your day. Does one hour of teshuvah fix those 23 hours? If you did teshuvah, you maybe regained those 23 hours, but you didn't use them properly, you didn't use them conducively. So you're at a zero balance, but you don't have a plus 24 balance. But because we went to that journey of descent into a world of bad, and now we've made for ourselves, we've renewed our heart in the service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, really we've used that day, we've utilized it in some level to really get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even if our balance is zero. And it turns out that the day has become pure on its own. Meaning, 
The day has now been accounted for. We fixed the day. We fixed the 23 negative hours. The next step that is left for a person is now to add positive. So we've stepped away from that which is negative. The day has now been purified. But what about the individual? What action did we do? Not leaving chet. That's called teshuvah. We've returned back to our original factory specifications. But what have we done now to upgrade ourselves? And therefore, says Rav Kuk, he said, and when a person takes actions, not just to stay at zero, but to add numbers, to add hours of productivity, of useful God-connecting activity in their day, then all of a sudden it's no longer a passive teshuvah. It's no longer that the day has become purified. The person is now taking concrete measures to purify themselves. And just like we were able to purify our day, we now were able to purify our individual person. So essentially there's two steps. There's the step of fixing the balance that's negative. Paying back our credit cards. Paying back our debt. Now we've balanced out our debt, we're at zero. That day has now become pure. But we're only at zero. Meaning, yes, and we're not taking away the tremendous amount of work it takes to press the reset button and bring ourselves back to a place of teshuvah. But teshuvah is just restoring us to a blank playing field, a, 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 new, a new page, a fresh new page. Once we do that, we now have to take action not just to fix what was wrong, but to do that which is good. David HaMelech says, <clears throat> David HaMelech says, Sur mera tov. You must leave evil and do good. Leave evil and do good. I once heard from my wife that the Slonim Rebbe, Allah Shalom, he wrote a book, Netivot Shalom. In Yerushalayim, we used to study that book a lot. He writes, why do you have to leave evil in order to do good? Meaning, why don't you tell people to do good? Why do you have to spend time in evil? By the way, in the world of Hasidim, there was a huge debate between different camps of Hasidim whether the proper path for serving Hashem is to fix all the bad you've done in your life and then do good, or if you should just do good, and by doing good, you'll leave behind the bad. The difference being that if you involve yourself so much in fixing your past mistakes, you're still living in mistake. You're still living in chet. Your whole life becomes an obsessive journey of all the avirot that you've done in your life. Whereas sometimes it's best to just counteract your evil with positive deeds, with, with actions that matter. And ultimately you'll, you'll balance yourself out that way. It was a real philosophical divide among the early Hasidic masters. One that I have no, I don't get involved in these things. When it comes here, Us, yeah, Rabbi. Um, said was the main difference between Stalin and maybe Rupshitz. The Teps. The Teps. The Teps. Yeah. Okay, so here my, we had a guest in my home where I learned this from. I'm 
not expert Hasidut, but I had a guest in my home a few years ago, his name was Rabbi Abish Shor. Rabbi Abish Shor is a Karliner historian, and he writes many articles, many academic articles. Internally, he has no background in academia, but he, he is very well respected in the world of Hasidic research. And uh, he came to our home, <laughs> and it was a very special person. He's a friend of my father-in-law, didn't intend to be by us at all, but, but he, he ended up spending a few days with us, and we learned some tremendous things from him. The Slanama Rebbe says the parable of a man, a farmer, he goes out with his boots on, it's a rainy day, brand new boots, his wife just bought him. He steps outside the front door, straight into the mud, and he's so upset that he didn't see that, that puddle of mud, and he decides he wants to step onto the dry ground, and he's just so upset, he's so upset that his boots are dirty. He says, listen, I want to make them clean. So while he's standing in this puddle of mud, he picks up his right boot and he starts to wipe it off with a towel in his pocket. And finally, the right boot is finally shiny, it's polished, it's clean. Now he has to clean his left boots. What does he do? He puts down his right boot back in the mud, picks up his left boot, and starts cleaning it off. Now both boots are clean. He looks, he sees the right boot got dirty again. He spends the whole morning cleaning off the right boot, the left boot, the right boot, the left boot. Because he never... Says David HaMelech, the first step you have to do is to step away from your evil. You cannot be doing good. You can't be cleaning your boots if you're still standing in a pile of mud. Because you'll be spending your whole life, it's, it's like building those pyramids in, in Mitzrayim that kept sinking back into the earth. Everything that you build ultimately gets, falls apart. Says Rav Kuk here, the first step of Teshuvah is to restore your balance to zero. To get rid of the negative. To make sure that the day is accounted for. But then there's a next step. The next step requires active work on your end active work on your end which purifies you just like the day was purified. With this thought process in mind, let's see how Rav Kuk reads the Gemara. Rav Kuk reads, And this is exactly what the Torah was hinting to us, was teaching us when it was talking about the purification of all those who are impure. Uva Hashemesh v'taher. The sun came, and then it was purified. The two readings of the Talmud correlate to the, the correspond to the two different readings of Aruch HaChamim, the two different levels. That which Aruch HaChamim say, that once the sun sets, he's gone to the Mikveh, he's in the Bet HaMikdash, now he's pure. That corresponds to the type of taharav purifying the day, restoring the balance to zero, a passive teshuvah. You've already used this day for something good, and because of that, it counts as a good day. But still, the totality of the person has not been purified. Because before his chet, he was higher than he is now. But when the sun comes, his sun comes. Here comes the sun in the morning. What does the sun do? Light. Oh, Torah Vadat. The light of Torah, the light of knowledge. And he comes to the Ben Mikdash and offers his sacrifice. Remember what I told you last week? The word Korban, sacrifice, is from the root Karov, Karev, to come close to the creator of the universe. The sacrifice is corresponding to a concrete action that we take to bring ourselves closer to the creator of the universe. 
להתקרב לרצון קונו בדעת ויראת השם ואהבתו, that we start taking positive actions, not just avoiding the negative, not just fixing the deficit, but bringing ourselves to a place of positive action, to loving HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to having awe of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to taking concrete steps towards a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, שאז זדונותיו מתהפכות לזכויות. That's exactly what our Chachamim mean when they tell us that our Averot ultimately turn into mitzvot. Remember that teaching of our rabbis? That our wrongdoings, they suddenly turn into... into what does that mean? It's a transformation that happens on two fronts. On the passive front of the day, of wasting life, of restoring that, and then the active relationship, the active teshuva between us and the Creator of the world. אז ותהר גברה גם כן מצד עצמו. And then one truly accomplishes both levels of purity that exist in the Talmud. So our rabbis in the Talmud, says Rav Kook, they're not arguing. They're not arguing with each other really on a practical way on how to read the Pasuk. We ultimately know how to read the Pasuk. But behind every rabbinic argument, says Rav Kook, is some deeper message, or something else that our Chachamim are trying to teach us. They're trying to teach us that there are two levels of Teshuvah. Two levels of Teshuvah. One that happens because we've decided to abandon the past. And one that is positive. One that's the next step. It's where we take the past and we turn it into mitzvot. It's where we transform our entire being into a person who is good, who is holy, who is righteous. And these two steps are exactly why the Gemara is concerned. Are we talking about the purification of the day, of the past, of time, passively? Or are we talking about the purification of a person, the individual, actively? Says Alf Kuk, we're talking about both. Both steps are required to bring about the refinement of a human being in his connection to Borei Olam, to the creator of the universe. I think that this type of reading of Alf Kuk that we did tonight, I told you in the beginning, it breathes life. It doesn't take away from the halachic conversations here. It doesn't take away from the technical reading of the Gemara here. It adds another dimension. A dimension which tells you that even in our own lives, we have, we're on a journey. Everybody's on a journey. And very often we're worried about making up for lost time. That's something you have to worry about. But you don't want to get stuck there. You want to make sure that once you balance out the past, the past is the past. It is what it is. They say that the past, there's nothing you can do about the past. You can only fix it. How? By being proactive in your relationship with the Creator. Stop doing teshuvah that's passive. Stop doing teshuvah that's reactive. All the time we're reacting to avirot that we do. Start to put ourselves in a place that is positive, that is connecting to the creator of the world. And ultimately that type of teshuvah, that relationship with the Kadosh Baruch Hu, brings about an entire, entirely different person inside of us that is one that is always doing good. I will tell you, and this Rav Kuk didn't write, at least not here, that I think that so much of the Judaism which we talk about in the, in the religious world today, it's a Judaism of the first variety of how to react always to the chataim that we do. We're always bad, we're always doing bad, we have to make up for things. The, when people ask me questions, even the basic halacha questions, I used a pot for this and a pan for that and a spoon, it was dairy, it was meat. That. The overwhelming feeling of guilt that people have, this feeling of I'm so bad, I messed up again, oh, one more time, I forgot something. This feeling of guilt ultimately is what knocks a person down from actually serving the Creator. We get so distracted with the feelings of negativity that go on inside of us that it, it makes us avoid the path of enlightenment to Olam, to the Creator of the universe. And I think, I think that a Judaism that was less reactionary but more proactive, 
that actually had spiritual doctrines, not just reactions to human ailments and failings that are natural to people. A path, a guide, like Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam, the guide to serving God, which we studied together. There's an, there are actions that you can take, things that you can do. The Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam, instead of focusing on what does it mean to desecrate Shabbat, he talks to us about different levels of divine encounters that a person can accomplish if they observe Shabbat properly. There's a person who just sits and eats and sings and it's a spiritual day for them. Then there's a person who does it and they're in a qualitatively different place. And then there's the person who encounters the creator of the universe at their Shabbat table through food, through singing, through joy, through mitzvot, through observance of Shabbat. When are we going to stop telling people about all the things they break Shabbat with? They already know that. And when do we start turning Shabbat? It's not a spin on Shabbat, it's the purpose of Shabbat. It's the It's the origin of all blessings, the source of all blessings, meaning this Shabbat that we... Imagine the last time somebody told you that when you do a mitzvah, you're aiming, your goal, your purpose is to reach some kind of divine encounter. Put on a divine encounter. You say Amidah. When's the last time you encountered the divine when doing any mitzvah? Keeping Shabbat. Putting up a mezuzah. That's the real work. That's where we belong. Once we balance out the past, leave it in the past. Now it's time to go forward. A Judaism that is positive, a Judaism that is proactive. This type of Judaism will take Am Yisrael to levels of purity that ultimately will bring about the redemption. And I look forward to living to see that day together with you, with our friends, with our family, with everybody else, and especially with my dear uncle, Chaim Yitzhak Daniel Bati Elana. He should have a refuah I wish everybody a night at all, a Shabbat Shalom when it comes, and God willing, I will stick around to answer any questions you might have.